Then I'd like to talk about impermanence, but also about the implications of impermanence. When we come on a retreat, each one of us brings with us our personal story. Just as our personal story has accompanied us into all of the different experiences and moments of our life. And our personal story formed by the individual experiences you've all had in your past, your histories that have given rise to how you see the world, how you see yourself, the kind of thoughts you think, the kind of emotions you have, this is, of course, what really forms you as a person, you as an individual, somewhat unique, somewhat different than the person who sits beside you. Yet as we come into a retreat, very much living within and living through our personal story, Perhaps we also begin to sense that just as this room holds all of those personal stories, there is also a kind of universal story. There's a universal theme that permeates all of our stories, that runs through all of our lives. And in this story, we're actually not so unique. Each one of us finds within our personal story the eternal rhythms, the eternal themes of beginnings and endings, endings and beginnings, that the rhythm of change from which none of us are exempt, that runs through all life. If we were to spend some time talking together here and we would ask the question, you know, how many of you have known someone close to you or maybe not so close? Who has died in this past year? How many of you have known someone close to you or not so close? Who has become ill? Whose whose whole health, whose whole life has changed through illness? How many of you have known someone who has been part of bringing a new life into the world? If we went around the room, we would probably find those of you whose life has changed radically just in the last year, losses. Sometimes things have fallen apart. Sometimes there's been new beginnings. There's been new, new New, new relationships born, new, new lifestyles born, new ways of being born. Loss, gain, birth, death, health, illness, beginnings, endings. Probably none of us would be able to exempt ourselves from this story. It is a universal rhythm which teaches us, actually, about the way in which we are all participating in this life, endlessly being affected inwardly by this very essential, very fundamental process of impermanence. 
we begin to see the way our life, our story, it's a microcosmic view of all life that is equally participating in the dance of change. There is not one thing we can experience that is not being experienced before by another. The shifts in our world, the shifts in ourselves are not unique to us. And this process of beginnings and endings, the process of change that runs through all of life, sometimes it's a process that brings with it a lot of joy. Sometimes it's a process that brings with it a great deal of sorrow. That process of beginnings and endings, at times it is very painful, and other times, other beginnings, other endings, it's very healing. This eternal rhythm of change, which is so intrinsic to life, is of course not neutral. <coughs> we are affected deeply, we're changed, we're informed, our lives are informed, we are affected by all of the changes that happen around us. Just as the people in our world, those close to us, are affected and changed and their lives are informed by the changes that happen within us. We can see within this rhythm of change its ripples that spread out touching us and touching everyone around us. When our world changes or when the people in our world change, of course it would be absurd to believe that somehow we are going to stay the same that we're going to remain untouched or detached or removed. When our world changes or when the people around us change, we're actually really invited to respond. Many times change is something that asks us to, to really look again at what we value, what is important to us, where, where we actually find a refuge in this life. We're invited to be a conscious participant rather than a victim or rather than resisting. We come to understand that when we change too, everything and everyone around us is invited to respond and to change with us. To try to remain unchanging in a changing world is to invite a great deal of fear and struggle and devastation into our lives. To be awake and to be re responsive, to be a conscious participant in the obvious and subtle changes of each moment is actually to allow ourselves to be deepened and to be taught by this universal story. In very real ways, our practice of mindfulness heightens our awareness, heightens our understanding of this dance of change in each moment. We are taught really through mindfulness practice to see the changes as turning points, the beginnings and endings as turning points, that each ending and each beginning of a thought, a feeling, a sound, a sensation, a breath, this is something we become more acutely sensitive to. We see that there's nothing that's standing still. There's nothing that is staying the same. 
and we see that all of those endings and all of those beginnings they're actually turning points that are so rich in possibility because they're inviting us every ending and every beginning is inviting us to live our life in harmony with the way things actually are with the reality of each moment that is the invitation of impermanence in mindfulness practice really really what we are doing is, is we're kind of studying life we're exploring life we're, we're in a way we're studying ourselves and we see the way in which the changes of each moment and our responses to them somehow as we see it in the retreat we see that is actually a very microcosmic view of the whole of our lives and how we respond to change how we respond to impermanence and we learn a lot of lessons we learn that to try to hold on to anything at all anything is to entangle ourselves in tension and conflict and struggle this is not not like some subtle hidden message we see this so clearly in our practice that when something has gone by when something is in the process of change to try and demand that it stays the same to try and maintain something that is already passing is an invitation a kind of self-imposed suffering we become a prisoner of it a prisoner of our own illusions you know in in this practice i mentioned it the other night so that this story of the prince Siddhartha leaving leaving his palace in search of freedom you know it was not just the, the kind of geographical palace that Siddhartha left in search of freedom it was not just the the, the kind of more obvious security of his identity his family his position really the, the reason that story is so often told in this tradition it is because actually the young prince Siddhartha was really leaving the palace of his illusions with much more than leaving a geographical palace it was leaving behind him that the illusion that he had the power to make anything stay the same it was leaving behind him the illusion that the pleasure and safety and certainty were the same as freedom it was leaving behind him the illusion that it was possible to make life stand still for him in our practice you know we are really often very very much invited to to learn to leave behind us to the same palaces of illusion why do we want to make things stand still and why do we want to make things stay the same often to kind of ease a fear a fear of not knowing a fear of uncertainty a fear of insecurity in this practice you know every step of mindfulness practice is a training in letting go and we're learning to let go not only of our illusions 
But we are also learning to let go of the possibility of devastation. We're learning to let go of some of our fears, our resistances, our struggles, and really, in a way, that letting go is not a barren space. You know, we don't let go in order to make ourselves unhappy. Letting go is not a neutral, it's not a desert-like space that is left behind. We learn to let go because that is actually what opens our hearts into a deeper sense of peace and balance and spaciousness. I think beginnings and endings are often really challenging places in our lives. They're the places where we easily fall out of balance. Actually, the truth is, we're often not that good with impermanence. You know, we're really often not that good with change. We can see sometimes, you know, we're about to start a new beginning, you know, maybe we're entering into a new relationship or, or, or a new job or a new lifestyle or, you know, we're, we're going traveling. There's some new beginning in our life that we're really excited about. And we see often the way that we fall out of balance is how we, we kind of get lost in the, you know, the planning, the strategies, the kind of certainties that we want to invest in that new beginning. Um, we see sometimes new beginnings are very anxious places for us. You know, we're, we're not that happy about starting over in something. We're, we're not that happy about some life change. And we see and our, our anxiety actually almost leads to, leads the same kind of thoughts, thoughts, the same kind of mind movements as, as excitement. That anxiety too wants us to, leads us to want to kind of secure the future, have guarantees, you know, have certainties, all the strategies of thinking about it. And when we get caught, of course, in all the kind of mind constructs of those beginnings, there's a kind of amnesia there, isn't it? I mean, whether our beginnings are pleasant or whether they're unpleasant, it's, it's like we've totally forgotten about endings. You know, if, if it's pleasant, we often think, you know, oh, this is going to be forever, isn't it? I mean, how many times, well, maybe some of you haven't, but fallen in love, this is forever. I mean, maybe some of you have done that forever, but, you know, I mean, we started doing it when we were about 11 years old, didn't we? You know, we're falling in love, it's going to be forever, you know. It's just a total amnesia about endings, isn't it? I mean, it, it's like, but it's the same with the unpleasant, you know, sometimes you just have a mind state come to visit you in meditation, you know, a little boredom, you know, or a little kind of stress, or, you know, don't oh, forever, it's never going to be any different. Mm-hmm. This is a total illusion about impermanence. And so, like, like, the whole kind of pressure, the whole anxiety that comes with that forever, because somehow we separated ourselves from from what is actually true. We tend to welcome pleasant beginnings because they, they tend you know, they look like they promise us safety and, and delight and refuge. And we tend to dread beginnings that are that are asking us to go into unknown territory or, or to face uncertainty. We certainly welcome impermanence, don't we? when it's a kind of ending of something unpleasant. I mean, you know, when you get out of the dentist chair, ah, so glad about impermanence. You know, oh, so happy that impermanence is true, you know, and that, that it's real, you know. When you, you kind of, an illness comes to an end, or, or you know, when, when a difficult person you're around suddenly leaves the room, 
thought of gratitude for Antonio. But we dread the endings. You know, we have a totally different relationship to impermanence when it's the ending that seems to somehow be delivering us a kind of sense of loss or, or you know, the deprivation of something that, that we're really clinging to or when we're faced with the unknown, then the endings become these places of devastation. We often see in, in the kind of emotions or the feelings that we bring to endings and beginnings so these are the places that often we really do fall out of balance. And that they're really important places to understand. Not, not the very, only the very obvious endings and beginnings in our lives, but the very subtle moment-to-moment beginnings and endings that we experience in each moment of our day. That these are actually really crucial moments to understand to see our relationship to, that there are places in endings and beginnings where we're often most powerfully invited to learn the lessons of freedom. You know, when you think back on today, you know how you've been with the countless beginnings and endings that you've encountered today. You know, how did we greet the end of a wonderful meal or a sound we were really enjoying? Is it going to come again? You know, when is it going to repeat itself? You know, how, how did we greet an emerging pleasant thought? Did we say, this is in the process of change? Or did we say, oh good, a pleasant thought, you know? Let me get really into this, you know, really into this fantasy, really into this daydream. How did, how did we greet an unpleasant sensation, an unpleasant thought? Was it, this is fine, this is part of the kind of rhythm of life, the permanent, rising and passing? Or is it, oh no, you know, not this, I can't be with this one. Just as we cannot make life a standstill for us, we also cannot guarantee what is going to come next. The truth is that life is really uncertain. In our practice, we are, you know, this is, this is really a life training. We are cultivating the art and the wisdom of living with uncertainty, of being very open to being surprised, to welcome, learning how to welcome being surprised. Because we really see that when we can't live with uncertainty, when we can't allow ourselves to be surprised, to be startled by change, what we are doing is living in some sort of frozen inner world about how things should be, how other people should be, how I should be, how this moment should be. Learning to approach Change, learning to approach the turning points in our life with openness, with understanding, is really an invitation for us to learn how to cultivate a mind and a heart which is, which is at ease with not knowing, which can rest in uncertainty. I think that probably some of the most challenging and most disturbing moments in our lives when we really are when we really face the reality that we just don't know. 
but we don't know what's going to happen next. One of the nuns, one of the sisters from Amaravati who, who comes to teach here, told me this story about how some years ago, you know, she was, she was very tied up in the busyness of the monastery, you know, and every day she would get up and be making plans about, you know, what she was going to do that morning, what she was going to do that afternoon, and that became kind of a sort of a part of her life as it becomes very much part of our lives. She said, you know, she said she got up one morning and she was sort of gully walking over to the monastery with all these plans and all these strategies about, you know, what she was going to say, what she was going to do, how things had to happen, and she fell over. She had a, a brain hemorrhage. Just in that moment, her world dissolved. And she said it was such an extraordinary teaching for her to, to, she did recover, of course, you know, she told me the story, she recovered. <laughs> but she said it was such an extraordinary teaching about how much she took for granted that the world was going to unfold for her in this way she had predicted this way she had assumed. And how that, that kind of moment was it this extraordinary kind of waking up for her. It's such a powerful teaching in relying upon nothing. I mean, we don't know, really, what our lives are going to present to us. We, we don't know how they're going to fall apart or how they come together or what kind of thoughts or feelings or encounters we're going to meet. And this is really not an easy truth to embrace. But it's also in embracing it really deeply. It's where we do find a powerful freedom. I mean, I know that, you know, this impermanence and change, it's something we've all reflected on, you know, we've heard about it a million times, haven't we? We've all felt challenged by it at times, and intellectually, of course, we all agree with it. I mean, nobody would here would say, you know, things don't change, you know. When we hear about impermanence, we really nod our heads wisely, you know. Oh, yes, you know, yes, everything does change, but it can't rely on anything. It's not a new insight. You know, it is not a new insight. In fact, sometimes, you know, we hear, oh, impermanence, you start yawning, you know, like, Oh, more on impermanence, you know. <laughs> the truth is that un really understanding impermanence is an insight that has the power to dramatically, totally, radically alter our lives. Totally, radically alter our lives. It is, to understand impermanence deeply, it means that our whole way of being and our whole way of being in this world and in ourselves changes. It is not so much about just understanding impermanence, but it is actually understanding the implications of that insight. I mean, all insight has implications. You know, sometimes people think, I think in this practice, they think, oh, you know, it's just about getting insight. Having insight is just the first step. Understanding the implications of insight of an wisdom is, is really the big piece of this path. You know, it's like, like if you really know what causes suffering in your life, that's an insight. It has a fairly big implication, you know? 
It means actually that you stop participating in the causes of suffering. You know, if if we really see that, you know, that the kind, if we really have some understanding of the ways perhaps we might sabotage our well-being, you know, with judgment or or with disconnection, that's an insight. It has some major implications to really live in accord with that insight. You know, if we really understand what, what pathways of confusion, you know, through grasping, through holding, through dwelling, or through obsession, it's a pretty big insight. But it also has implications. You know, and it, it's when we actually embrace the implications, you know, that maybe then this means something about letting go. This means something about non-dwelling. This means something about cultivating loving kindness. This means something about renunciation. It's like when we embrace the implications of insight, that is when insight really comes alive. That, that is when it, it really has the power to uproot, to radically change the course of our mind. Impermanence, like all sides, insight, understanding impermanence, it really too has major implications. You know, I think it's it's not unusual to have this experience where you know we have wisdom and we have insights and we don't and we feel like there's a gap between our insights and our actual embodiment of them. You know? And 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 then we, we kind of look like a spectator upon our inner world and upon our outer world. And, and sometimes there's almost a way that we start using our insights as a weapon with which we beat ourselves up. You know, because like, it's like we have the insight perhaps, you know, that judgment is, is pretty undermining for us. And there we are just judging away, you know. Or, or you know, we have the insight that, you know, that holding and grasping is, is really leads to this contraction. And we see ourselves doing it. It's like watching ourselves fall in the same hole over and over again. And that is so frustrating. You know, I often feel that the Westerners coming to practice, they already have a lot of insight. They've got a lot of inner exploration, a lot of inner reflection. And I think for Westerners in practice, you know, one of the greatest challenges is trying to understand this gap that exists between their understanding and their application of it. Because when it's not applied, then very often we're finding ourselves in places very far from where we want to be and almost kind of blaming ourselves for that. We say this shouldn't be happening. (laughs) It is happening. So it is not just the inside alone that is needed. It is actually really exploring the implications of those understandings and that is actually the beginning of the path. You know? Sometimes we feel like just getting the insights is the beginning of the path. The beginning of the path, I think, actually begins when we start to look at how we apply, how we embody the understanding, the insights we have. And that's a much more challenging path, you know, than sitting back on a cushion saying, Oh yes, you know, ninety five I understood impermanence. Oh yes. Well how do you live it, you know? Do we really see that being lived in our lives? You know, you know, sitting back and said, "Oh yes, you know, I really had an insight into the, you know, the profoundness of loving kindness." Mind still judging, you know, mind still aversive. When does it begin? 
No, no, there's something I think in this tradition where we're really asked to to honor our wisdom, to honor our understanding. And the way that it's actually honored is actually through living it. There are three three dimensions, I think, of impermanence that are sometimes worth reflecting on. One dimension of impermanence is a very natural process of change in which we're all part, which is the rhythm of our life. It's a process of change which is very subtle. You know, the way, our, the way that we have changed in our lives, you know, from, from being an infant to a child to, to an adult to, to the person we are right now at this point in our life, you know, it, it's a process of change actually which is going to continue until we come to an outgrowth, which is not going to be followed by an in-breath. This is actually not something so startling. And yet it is startling, because sometimes we actually really don't notice what's going on. You know, a few years ago I was teaching a retreat for families, and a lot of children were there, and and there were these little girls outside with their skipping ropes, you know, and I was walking by, you know, and they said to me, can you skip? You know, and I looked at them, can you skip? Of course I can skip, you know, I skipped for years, I could skip. And they said, just show up, you know. So I said, okay, you know, stand back, kid, you know, here comes the expert skipper. Could I skip anymore? No. <laughs> and my legs were tired and the ropes, you know, I was hardly out of rhythm with it. It, it was like this really startling moment when I realized, actually, I didn't know how to skip anymore. And it wasn't that I didn't know in my mind. I knew in my mind how to skip. My body wasn't doing it anymore. And then you have those moments that are so startling, you know. And, you know, like a couple of years ago, I went to the dentist, and I started this experience when my teeth kept wanting to liberate themselves from my mouth, you know. And I was getting all these root canals, you know. And I said to my dentist, you know, like, what is going on? You know, it's not like I suddenly stop brushing my teeth or eating candy all day. He said it's a design fault. He said your teeth think your body should be dead. And <laughs> <laughs> oh. you know? it was in that moment of thinking, you know, actually this is aching. This is really aching, you know, like like wake up here. Something else is going on. And I think, you know, sometimes, like, like when we're really alienated from, from any sense of our life rhythm, then actually we, we, we actually do devote a lot of time and a lot of energy to somehow just trying to defy this process. And, you know, it doesn't make any difference, you know? Whether we live in denial and trying to defy the process of, of aging, for example, in our life, you know, it doesn't actually make one big difference. It still happens. It still goes on. And it's a kind of process of unknowing because we don't know how things are going to stay together or to fall apart. We don't know what comes next. You know, there's a lot of existential anxiety that lives within us around both living and dying. It's an existential anxiety which is about, you know, the unknown, about letting go place where we're not always comfortable, we really would like to know. Mm-hmm. There, there's a story of a student, you know, that the Zen master and says, you know, you're so wise, you know, tell me what ha- what's going to happen to me after I die. 
And this is just like, how am I supposed to know? And she's just like, because you're a Zen master, you know, you're supposed to know everything. You should know, you're a good Buddhist, you should know what happens after you die. You said, I may be a good Buddhist, but I'm not a dead Buddhist. <laughs> the truth is, we don't know, you know, and yet the mind would really love to have these guarantees. It's interesting in that place of uncertainty. One thing perhaps that we might reflect on is that the manner of our dying is probably going to be something similar to the manner of our living. That we are actually always creating the history of the next moment through the way, through the manner in which we are present in this moment. Learning about how to let go, learning how to live in harmony with change, with beginnings and endings. This is actually a, a history we are cultivating in all moments, where endings are nothing to fear. And this actually is one of the implications, one of the lessons of being truly connected with the changing process of our body and mind, knowing that in this moment, how we are present in this moment, we are actually giving birth to the quality of our next moment. We are creating our future, the very next moment, with how we are present in this moment. We are learning, in being close to life, how to let go with grace, how to be at ease in not knowing it. There's a poem by Mary Oliver. She says, every year, everything I have ever learned in my lifetime leads back to this. The fires and the black river of loss, whose other side is salvation, whose meaning none of us will ever know. To live in this world, you must be able to do three things. To love what is mortal, to hold it against your bones, knowing your own life depends on it. And when the time comes, to let it go, to let it go. And one of the most difficult, one of the most challenging dimensions of change, of course, is when change comes to us that we don't welcome, that we haven't invited, that, has, that is imposed upon us. The changes that do come to us in our life where we have no control over them and no wish to participate in them, and yet we have no choice. These are the moments when we are asked to most deeply embody a quality of grace, to find the compassion and the balance of being able to welcome change which is unwelcome. People who we care for sometimes leave us. We need failure or disappointment. Sometimes our trust in others is betrayed. Sometimes we receive blame and judgment. We face an uncertain world, and sometimes it feels like a lot of loss. You know, I have an insurance agent who, who comes to visit me, and some of you have heard me talk about him before, because he continues to be actually quite 
uh, an impressive part of my life once a year. And it's funny that over the years, you know, his story really hasn't changed. And and if I told you this story four years ago, I have to tell you, the story keeps getting more elaborate. And he comes, and and of course he has this underlying agenda, you know, that he'd like me to buy more insurance. So he comes, and he sits in my house, and he goes through all the terrible things that might happen to me in my life. He says, what would you do, you know, if your children died, you know? What would you do if your partner lost his job? What would you do if your people stopped meditating? You know, what, what would you do if you, you know, like nobody ever bought your book? You know, what would you do if you got really sick? You know, you know what, would you, what would you do if you had a car accident? You know, and and because he just looks extremely serious about it. You know, and in fact, it's, it's really kind of you know tour through tragedy. You know, my my potential tragedy. And I sit there, you know, and I, in a way I'm kind of amused and. And in a way, you know, and by the way, it does get more elaborate as I get older, you know, he says, you are in that age group. <laughs> a lot of things start to go wrong. <laughs> I, <tell you. laughs> I said, yeah, I need you to tell me this, you know, I'm like, I really need you to tell me a lot of things start to go wrong. Uh-huh. And part of me is kind of amused, you know, and part of me, actually, when I think about it, I realize actually it's all possible. It's all possible. That's so amazing. That we live with uncertainty and unpredictability. And actually, uncertainty and unpredictability, they're like the great enemies of the mind and the heart that longs for safety and for guarantees. Like they're so incompatible. You know? The mind and the heart that's really demanding guarantees and, and surety and safety, it, it's like it cannot embrace uncertainty, and yet that is the truth of life. Sometimes we don't even know how entrenched our, our longings for, for sameness and stability are until we're faced with change. When we do that, you know, when we have this allergy, this allergy to uncertainty, <laughs> change still comes to us. And when it does, you know, then we want to flee from it. And one of the places we go is into the past. You know, when things are falling apart or things are changing in ways we don't like, we go into the past, don't we? We remember how things used to be, how we want them to be. We try to desperately try to reorder our world. Or we jump into the future, you know, trying to, to kind of pull the puzzle together. Or we blame. You know, often when change comes to us that is unbidden, we blame, you know, we blame other people as if our life has been stolen from us. Or we blame even ourselves, as if it's somehow our fault, that, that the world is unpredictable, that life is unpredictable. How much effort we put in in our lives to not being surprised, to making sure we're not surprised. I read something recently, Present says, you know, that people long to be settled, and yet only as long as they are unsettled is there the possibility of freedom. Change, it doesn't, you know, change comes, and sometimes it's not welcome. Of course, sometimes change really does bring a lot of sadness and grief and sorrow with us. We're not expected to jump with glee when our worlds fall apart. But we are invited to explore what it might mean to be more at ease in not knowing, to be more at ease 
and uncertainty, to live in greater harmony with the rhythm of change. It's like we do so much to protect ourselves from that essential rhythm. And one of the things that we do is that so we tend to fill our life, our, our world, with these constructs. You know, we have the, the constructs of our identities, of our roles, of our lifestyles. Sometimes we build them out of creativity, and sometimes we build them out of fear. We have a lot of constructs about other people, about you know people we like and dislike, and why, and the images we hold about ourselves and about others. And sometimes these are the, our, our kind of defense systems, and we insist, we try to insist, that everybody stays within the confines of our constructs, or that we stay within them. We're often so, so frightened to leave them. This came very clear to me, you know, something I've been uh, very close to this year is, uh, my father, for example, my father has been diagnosed this year with this degenerative um, eye condition. So he's actually losing his sight, and soon, soon he will go blind. And his whole life, his whole identity has been built on being this kind of, uh, you know, vigorous, athletic, healthy, you know, engaged person. This is his identity. To him, this is who he is. And so losing his vision is something that he simply cannot in any way embrace. It is, it is a terrible denial because it is like losing his vision is losing, losing himself. It's like losing his life. And yet the more I see it in him, the more that he tries to resist it, intuitively he knows that something is changing and that he is going to need to change. And yet the more, the more he's almost like intuitively aware of that, the more he resists the reality. And I see in him the suffering that comes with that. And you know, that's, cause, and I see that you know, in, in him, and it's sometimes it's easier to see it in other people. But in us too, you know. What do we build our identities on? What do we rely on things staying the same? What, what, how much do we demand other people stay the same so that we won't be disturbed, so that we won't face this, this rhythm of change which somehow we start to translate as loss and deprivation. And maybe there's another way of being within it. You know, maybe there's, there's a way of being within it where there's a, a greater sense of grace, where, where we have some kind of refuge in the wisdom of understanding in which we're not so shattered by change, in which we're not so, so, so devastated, in which we don't equate change with something being stolen from us. There's investigation. You know, investigation is sometimes said to be the most important, the most liberating of all of the factors of enlightenment. And investigation really is kind of turning our attention to all of these places where, where we have frozen life. Whether we've frozen life and frozen ourselves in a self-image, whether we've frozen other people in an image, whether we've 
either uh, resist change or whether we try to hold on to things, anything at all, investigates this kind of the willingness to leave nothing unquestioned, to leave nothing un unexamined. And we don't investigate in order, of course, to make ourselves better. We cultivate that quality of investigation in order to find really a path of happiness and a heart of happiness. We investigate so that we can live in harmony, truly in harmony with the way things are. Another dimension, perhaps, of change is, is not change that's imposed upon us, not change that's pressed upon us. Sometimes change and it's really born of wisdom and of joy. Mm -hmm. Sometimes uh, change is something that we initiate out of joy and out of understanding. And sometimes there's a growing sensitivity in our lives, perhaps in, in which we, we do sense the fragile nature of our lives, the fragile nature of our lives. We, we see the fragile nature of many of our contacts. And sometimes out of that there's born not a sense of despair, just depression, but much more a quality of a kind of divine discontent. It's not about blame or, or, or avoidance. But in recognizing perhaps the fragile nature of life, we're not long, no longer so willing to make the pursuit of safety or make the pursuit of certainty the primary mission in our lives. We're more willing and more eager to cultivate a mind and a heart that really doesn't lean on anything. That's really at ease in not knowing. They recognize that although we can see uncertainty and not knowing as a place that's really fearful for us, it's also the place of mystery. It's also the place of freedom. Sometimes we ask ourselves, you know, what it is that we're really devoted to in our lives, what it is that we're really dedicated to. Understanding that if we're dedicated to preserving sameness and certainty, it means being dedicated to sorrow and struggle. That if our dedication is to learning, to openness, to living in harmony with the natural rhythm of life, this is also a dedication to peace and to balance. We investigate really what brings joy and what brings sorrow, and we learn to live in harmony with that wisdom. We learn to embody it and to apply it in all of the moments of our lives. And more and more it comes clear to us, it becomes clear and clear, that the only peace in this world is found in living in accord with the way things actually are in each moment. In bending ourselves to embrace the changes of each moment, to see them clearly, to understand them deeply, and maybe to be taught by them. That impermanence is teaching of freedom. It's a teaching of letting go. And it is a teaching of ease. We can just a couple of moments, kind. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.